0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Czerny. My guest today is Scott Bukatman, author of the book Black Panther, published in 2022 by University of Texas Press and part of their 21st Century Film Essentials series, Scott is Professor of Film and Media Studies at Stanford University, and has written extensively about popular media and genres. His book focuses on the 2018 film and its importance to black popular culture, but also reviews the background of the comic series and the work of the people involved in the making of the blockbuster. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Scott Bukatman. Hi Scott, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing, Joel? I'm good. I'm speaking with Scott Bukotman, uh author of the book, Black Panther. Um, he works or he's a teach, and a professor at Stanford, and we can talk a little bit about your background. Um, I suspect there are a number of people who listen to these podcasts who have heard of you before because we tend to get a lot of academics. Um, so I'm glad that uh, we have a chance to talk about your new book The book came out in July, is that correct? That is correct Now, I was looking through your list of writings And it looks like it's been a while since you've actually published a full book I mean, obviously you've been publishing a lot of stuff over the years But uh, um, any uh, what happened that suddenly this was the time to actually write another book?
0: Well, hmm, I didn't think it was that long since my last book. The book before this one was uh, Hellboy's World, Comics and Monsters on the Margins. And I think that came out in like 2016. Oh, okay. Well, I guess
1: (laughs) I guess five, six years. I guess that is a whatever. No worries. (laughs) Well,
0: I'm trying to feel good about the gap here. I didn't think it was that bad. But anyway, um, what happened this book came about because I was contacted by Donna Kornhaber the editor of the 21st century film essentials series from University of Texas Press and that's the series that this is part of and she asked me what recent films I could think of that um, I might want to write a book about and I, I thought I didn't realize she meant 21st century I thought she meant recent as in the last 18 months or whatever and I had two thoughts I thought Paddington 2 and Black Panther. These are the two I wanted to write about. And then I thought about it for a second. I thought, and of
1: course, they're very okay. similar.
0: Well, you know, animals, I don't know, there's something in common. But I just thought, uh, you know, maybe readers would be more interested in a book on Black Panther. And I'll save the Paddington 2 book for another time. So uh, they leapt at the chance to um, have me write about Black Panther. I was really glad of that. And I dug in. Uh, I was really you know, happy that I was able to, that that book wasn't taken already, I guess is what I'm trying to say.
1: So, um, obviously, based on when the book came out, I suspect you were doing quite a bit of work during the pandemic on the book.
0: Yeah, which was um, challenging. It was good in the sense of, something to do uh something to focus on that wasn't the pandemic but it was very difficult of course being housebound with my wife and my son Uh, my son you know trying to do distance learning and not having as many play dates as he might and my having to sort of take him to The local skate park and find a way to write while he was trying to learn how to dip in on his scooter and various things like that so it was was definitely a challenge to write during the pandemic and it was difficult to sort of sustain writing i would find myself writing a lot in one day and then not writing at all for a couple of weeks and then coming back to it or writing about something some other aspect and then trying to tie it all together later and that 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 was less uh it was less of an organic process than I think my writing often is.
1: So University of Texas Press published the book. Um, and as I was mentioning to you before, I've been doing quite a few interviews lately with, from them, there's a few publishers, academic publishers who are really great in that they've been really focusing on film, um, the superhero genre as a, as a group, not only in film, but also television and, and uh, print. So it's great that uh, there are so many great examples of, of these kind of books out there. So I've interviewed a number of people about these kind of, uh, of uh, types of books, so that's great. So um, where, what's your background as far as obviously a lot of what you've written over the years and your specialty relates to uh, comics and arts and, and similar things. Film and media studies is your exact um focus but that's quite a bit of stuff so obviously uh superhero the whole uh thing i was looking at some of the courses you've taught in last semest- last group you were doing superhero theory and reading comics so <laughs> i suspect they're both pretty and related with the kind of material you're writing where did that all come up for, for you what led you to focus on that
0: well, certainly comics and superheroes have always loomed large in my life ever since, you know, adolescence, if not earlier than that. And, um, you know, but I trained in film studies uh, and my first, my dissertation, which became my first book was called Terminal Identity. And it was about electronic culture and science fiction. And even then I, I, sort of cast a wide net. I didn't just look at science fiction film, but I looked at science fiction literature, and I looked at science fiction comics, things like American Flag by Howard Chaik and various things like that, um, some stuff coming out of Europe. and my next book was a monograph for the British Film Institute on Blade Runner and even there I ended up talking about um the comics that appeared in heavy metal magazine things by Mobius and folks like that that had a certain kind of impacted urbanism that that influenced blade the design of Blade Runner and so when I looked back over my writings years later I realized that comics were never ever absent from what I wrote about and at a certain point I guess uh post tenure and all of that i realized that i could focus on it more if i wanted to and gradually comics became more central to my teaching and my writing and so did superheroes and they're not the same thing superheroes for me for a long time were just a subset of comics Um, i studied them solely in the context of comics but of course in the 21st century with the rise of the marvel cinematic universe and other related things on television and from other publishers and things like that other studios it became obvious more and more obvious to me that superheroes could no longer be considered um, a medium specific genre that belonged to the world of comics that now they Belonged much more to movies and TV, at least as far as audiences were concerned, than to comics. And I needed to, to contend with that. In um, 2011, I published an essay in uh, uh, I think it was still called the Comics Journal then. Now it's the Journal of uh, Cinema and Media Studies. No, Comics Journal.
1: I misspoke. Cinema Journal. Um, <laughs> I'm actually. Yeah, I, I was going to ask I, you about that article. I'm glad you yeah, brought right.
0: it up. Uh, I, I in 2011. I published an article in Cinema Journal, which is now called the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies, and it was called Why I Hate Superhero Movies. And it was all about the ways in which I thought, as a cinematic genre, this was to me, useless. Despite my love of superheroes and my love of film, it seemed to me that they didn't go together very well. But I've changed my tune. Um, Over the years, I think the films got more interesting. And more significantly, I think I began to figure out how to think about film superheroes or superheroes on the screen more productively than I was able to at the time. Again, I think I changed, but I think the media changed as well.
1: Yeah, it's in 2011, um, the first film in the what we now know as the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Iron Man, came out in 2008, so obviously by the time you wrote that article, there hadn't been that many yet, but it, mm-hmm. it's go- it was going pretty well. Uh, the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe was going on. I rem- I was, I'm, I'm actually from Cleveland, so I was living in Cleveland still at the time when they were filming uh, the first Avengers movie. And they filmed Mm. parts of that in Cleveland. In fact, the front, the scene where Loki uh, talks to the crowd is in front of the Terminal Tower in downtown Cleveland on Public Square. And it's supposed to be a uh, German museum or something. But as I say, it's pretty obvious to me. And then there's a couple scenes where they're on one of the streets. And, you know, I remember when they were filming, we went to a baseball game up the street. And you could see all the sets made up and, of course, closed off so you couldn't see what was going on in there. So, And, in fact, they've been to Cleveland a number of times with some of the films. Part of that because of the Russo brothers. Um, So, obviously, though, you changed your mind. Even though in 2011, while it was just uh, getting going, um, obviously things got... More interesting to you, or you were able to to get over that. Now you and I are close to the same age, so I suspect we may have had similar comics readings when I was young. There's no question; I did a lot. I learned a lot to read based on comic books. I was reading them when I was a kid, and it was one of those things you walk into a place and there was a pile of comics, or you go into a waiting room for a dentist appointment or something, and there was a pile of comics. So you always read them. And then in the mid '80s. I came back to them uh, for reading purposes. Right around uh, 1986 or seven, Cleveland did a Superman convention. and um, that sort of got me back into it. So and anyway, so uh, I can see how they could have drawn you back in. Um, and then of course, I followed after Star Wars, the first one that came out was Superman in 78. That was the first real comic book hero that appeared in the movies for the first time. in, a, I don't know if, if ever at that point, but so. But what's interesting. I'm sorry, go on. I was going to say that, um, you know,
0: despite my thinking of superheroes as belonging to comics, they were transmedial almost from the beginning. And Superman was almost always the first superhero to lead the way into some new medium. So from comic books in 1938, there was a comic strip that began in 1930. There were animated shorts from the Fleischer studio in 1940. There was a radio serial around, right around that same time. 1940,
1: there was And the movie serial um, with the, the first movie live Superman, about, Kirk Allen.
0: Yeah, Kirk Allen in like 1948 or so. And then there was uh, Superman and the Mole Men, which was their attempt at a, trying the market for a feature film that then also became the pilot for the TV series in the 50s. So by the time you get to the 1978, Richard Donner and later Richard Lester Superman and Superman 2 Superman had been again sort of blazing a trail for other superheroes and other media but yeah that those Superman movies were among the first things other than well let me let me rephrase the Superman movies were aimed at all ages, but they were very welcoming to grown-ups. They were certainly kid-friendly, but they were welcoming to an adult audience. Although the tone of the movies, I don't think there's a problem with those movies at all. It sort of tells you something about what they were trying to do and their uncertainties about how to do it. They were simultaneously very kid-friendly with a lot of comedy and a lot of slapstick without, you know Gene Hackman and Ned Beattie as Lex Luthor and his henchman, and Valerie Perrine but then they also had a sort of sense of Star Wars kind of wonder and magic and they had some real sort of adult romantic banter between Margot Kidder's Lois Lane and Christopher Reeve's Superman so they were um, uh, inconsistent in tone but in a way that I think worked very well for those movies made them very
1: charming I remember going back to the convention I went to Kirk Allen was there Um, Noel Neal was there? This was seven eighty-seven, and Jack Larson was there. So all three, I got a chance to meet all three of them. And of course, nice. Kirk Allen, as we pointed out, was the first person to ever uh, appear as Superman in film. Um, uh, and then, of course, the other two were in the Superman TV series. So, uh, and actually, Noel Neal was in the serial as well. She played Lois Lane actually in the serial with Kirk Allen. Anyway, so. I can see where all of these things sort of came together. Um, of course, now, when we talk about, a f- you know, moving forward quite a bit, uh, when we start to talk about a film like Black Panther, if you think, I, I was looking up some dates because I was pretty sure I was right on this, and I and I am. There were two films in less than a year that came out that became touchstones for, concepts in superhero movies that had largely been ignored. In May 2017, so that was less than a year before Black Panther came out, that's when Wonder Woman came out from, DC, from Warner Brothers in DC. And of course that was a film that was lauded not only because it was a good film but because it was largely made by women because it was a you know woman character, women major roles. And then in January of 2018, and when Black Panther... by the Pan- way, a, w- a winning director, of course, right, Patty of course. Jenkins. And of course, then in less than a year, January of 2018 is when Black Panther comes out. Mm-hmm. And of course, begins to get the same kind of praise because of hitting an audience and also creators who had been largely ignored in the film industry, at least, as far as superhero movies in particular. Uh, And and the other good thing is both films got incredibly great critical reviews by regular critics who weren't necessarily caring as much about the superhero stuff. So I assume you saw Black Panther when it first came out or in that period. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you react the same way when you first saw it? the same way as as some of the I mean that that it was uh, it was not only was it a good movie but it had uh ideas of being different in the sense that it did something special
0: yeah no it was immediately evident that it was doing something special and not just because but I, I don't want to leave this topic behind but it's not just because it was featuring a hero who was not a white male, um, same as with Wonder Woman, as you just mentioned, but that there was something about the movie, um, the story it was telling, the quality of the storytelling itself, the caliber of the performances all up and down the line in that movie the way it was hitting audiences around me um you know who had far more invested in the idea of seeing a hero who looked like them as they as the saying goes uh all of these things marked it as being quite unique i also thought it was stunning in that unlike many of the superhero movies that were being released around that time um Black Panther was a movie that could in many ways stand on its own. It obviously was part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But if you didn't even know the phrase Marvel Cinematic Universe, you could go to Black Panther and understand entirely what was going on who the characters were what the stakes of the debate and the and the conflict were Uh, there was so much to relate to beyond the fact that it was a superhero movie i don't like saying things like it transcended its genre because i think it epitomizes its genre but it does it so well and does it without reliance on uh, an audience member having, you know, an encyclopedic knowledge of the history of the characters or the interrelation of the movies, that entirely new audiences of different ages and backgrounds could come in and see this thing and appreciate it for what it was.
1: The other thing, and of course, as you pointed out, with the the the, the people who made it, but it's you know, Marvel has been pretty good about getting people who you would never originally think would be in a superhero movie appearing in superhero movies, of course we had that happen way back in 78 with Superman when Marlon Brando appeared, but that was pretty much I think a money grab more than anything else he he took the money to appear in it. I don't know he cared as much about the content where some of the folks they've been able to get in the Marvel particularly in the Marvel movies, I mean when you've got Robert Redford and Michelle Pfeiffer and all these other folks who are known more for their serious acting to be willing to appear, and for that matter, Chadwick Boseman, uh, you know, you've got people who are not only are they accomplished actors, but have decided that this is worth their time doing.
0: Well, let's not discount the power of Marvel money in all of this, Uh, especially when you're talking about the supporting players in many of these films. These are often older actors for whom, you know, leading roles are probably fewer and farther between. And here they are able to get themselves known to a new generation of filmgoers, moviegoers. And, you know, meanwhile, as I say, get some of that lovely, lucrative, uh, you know, Marvel money. That's the cynical side of me talking. But when you talk about a movie like Black Panther and others to boot, but let's concentrate on Black Panther. Here you have um, the studio going out and recognizing that they needed to have a different um focus in this movie we needed to get you know high profile black actors they needed to get a high profile black director and there were several names that were sort of bandied about but then ryan coogler was signed on and coogler's someone who had made um a small independent feature called fruitvale station with some of the same crew that he later brought, and over with, michael so. with michael b jordan with michael b jordan let's let's just mark here that all three of kugler's feature films have featured michael b jordan either as starring or co-starring role but he had rachel morrison uh as the director of photography on fruitvale station who also went on to black panther hannah Beechler, who's been production designer on all of his films so there are ways that um, they wanted to get a black director to take care of this movie. Coogler, I think, had enough credibility. He, uh, The film he did after Fruitvale Station was Creed, which was a kind of a reboot of the Rocky franchise, which I think is an incredibly accomplished movie and was such a step up from the low-budget indie vibe of, of Fruitvale Station, which was the true story of Oscar Grant, a young man who was killed in a... Uh, BART, um, uh, you know, Bay Area transit station on, um, New Year's Eve, some years, before. Um, Here, he was doing a Rocky reboot with much bigger budget with people like Tessa Thompson and Sylvester Stallone and and people like that. And so he became a sort of, in retrospect, at least to my eyes, a very logical person who could step up and take over a multi, 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 multi-million dollar film production. And I think his credibility helped him to attract um, a certain Uh, caliber of performer, although many of the roles, including Chadwick Boseman as Black Panther, have been cast well before Kugler came on. But I think Kugler's credibility helped them. And I think Kugler's ability as a director of actors helped them tremendously and made the movie very much
1: what it is. Of course, as we know with the Marvel movies, there is interconnection. And, you know, obviously this was Black Panther was actually his second appearance in the in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He, he appeared first off at, in Civil War, which is in Captain America Civil War, which is the film, if not right before, but before Black Panther. Um, so that's the first time we actually get a chance to see him on screen is there. But then, of course, Black Panther does what many of these superhero movies do, which is to sort of give the person a... an origin story, so to speak. And um, the thing is, is we know that uh, Wakanda gets mentioned in earlier movies here and there. It's one of those Easter egg type things that fans will talk about how in earlier films when there were maps and stuff every once in a while, there was a map of Wakanda that the only way you would know it would be if you blew up the screen and looked, but that's what a lot of the major fans do. So we knew Wakanda was always something that was going to eventually appear in the cinematic universe so i actually saw black panther before i saw civil war so i agree except for a couple shots where i wasn't sure what was being discussed you're right it, it does stand alone quite well yeah
0: he's in civil war and i saw civil war when it came out and i was not happy with chadwick boseman as black panther in civil war there was something about the presentation, the performance that just didn't resonate with me. It didn't work for me. I wasn't all that into it. And in going back to Civil War after, you know, looking at Black Panther and working on the book and all that, I realized that in fact, Bozeman's performance in Civil War is very, very different than his performance in Black Panther for one thing civil war really is the movie that gives us his origin story his father is is killed in a blast that the avengers are blamed for but the avengers aren't responsible for and here's his son who's by hereditary right you know wears the mantle of black panther protector of wakanda and he's going after the person or people that he thinks have killed his father um so For reasons of the narrative, Bozeman, and also I think because maybe they hadn't fully figured out the the character yet, both actor and and filmmakers and studio, Black Panther in Civil War and Bozeman are cold. They are cold. They are focused. There's some very brief banter between Black Widow and Black Panther. But even there, it's like very couched in the language of diplomacy and formality. Whereas when you encounter Bozeman, Near the beginning of Black Panther, after a couple of prologues uh, uh, are out of the way, You know, already you've got more of Chadwick Boseman's smile, the warmth that he projects as an actor, banter between he and O'Koye, and just as sort of uh, fullness and richness of of, um, characterization and a warmth of performance that encourages you to just, I think, relate to this character or admire this character or want to spend more time with this character than at least I felt during Civil
1: War. Well, and that goes back to different writers, different directors. The character and, and, was, and, and, a, and he was and, uh, not a main character in the film. He was largely—I mean, he was obviously in it quite a bit, but it, he wasn't the main character. It wasn't—you yes. know—much of it. He just happened to be involved because that's how the the villain decided to cause the incident that he tried to do. So, right. um, but. It also helps to set up a little bit about what, because it's funny, it's one of those things that's mentioned in Black Panther about how his father was killed, and it harkens back, but you're right. They say enough of it in Black Panther about the bombing or the, the, the bomb blast that killed his father that that's enough. You don't need to know anything more about other stuff that happened in the previous film right but i just want to give you know just the shout out to bozeman
0: for also i think finding levels in the character uh through the script for the black panther movie than he found in his initial foray it's you know when you think about the serial nature of the marvel universe um, like many a tv show which is also a serial form it's fun to watch actors discover what their characters are and what kind of latitude they can to playing the character. And so it's actually quite fun to watch Civil War followed by by Black Panther. Which I actually did last week. (laughs) Right, yeah. In order to see Boseman just sort of, you know, find his level with the character so fulfillingly, so rewardingly.
1: And, of course, I think his final scene in in Civil War when... um... When he finds the person who ended up the antagonist for the entire film and stops him from killing himself, and there, there is something in that whole that scene that I think brought out the more um, humanity part of Chadwick. That Chadwick Boseman helped that scene quite a bit, at least as far as I'm concerned, because as much as this person did to him, he still saw the um, he understood at least somewhat why. The person did you know why the the villain did what he did at at, at the whole thing and then he
0: says uh, vengeance consumed your life i won't let it consume mine and the plot of black panther is actually going to be about another character killmonger played by michael b jordan who also is consumed by a quest of vengeance and whose life has been poisoned by his hatred for the people and the nation that abandoned him in the way that they did. So that last scene in Civil War has an interesting resonance in, you know, for the later movie as well.
1: Right. So the book, um, you've got uh, your chapters pretty well easily laid out. Um, Besides the introduction, you then have five other chapters, and at the beginning, the most obvious thing you do is try to give the background of the character. Uh, Obviously, one of the things that you study is not just film. You also uh, study the comics origins of Black Panther. So the first thing you do is to discuss and review uh, the history of Black Panther as a character. Um, And he's obviously been a very... He's been in... I forgot now you can give some of the background... Uh, of how long he's been in Marvel and um, how uh, he was first developed.
0: Well, Panther was introduced into the Fantastic Four in 1966, and up until that point, marvel and dc had very slowly been tiptoeing around including black characters into their comics and when i say black characters i I mostly mean black bystanders like like you know occasionally color someone in a crowd scene uh you know whatever color passed for you know african-american skin uh you know back in the days of four color printing processes and um there was even a letter that someone wrote to marvel thanking them unironically as i point out in the book for acknowledging the existence of what they said what the writer called the negro race like the idea that you would set a comic in new york city and have everyone in it be white and then hallelujah somebody you know colors a few different people in the background this was a sort of major major step the next major step was maybe to have a supporting character like uh the city editor over at the Daily Bugle, you know, working for J. Jonah Jameson alongside Peter Parker be, uh, you know, black character. But these were always just subsidiary figures um, in every in every way. And so um, along comes Black Panther in 1966, who is not quite the first black superhero. The first one is a character named Lion Man who appeared in one issue of all Negro comics in 1947. Fabulous. But another uh, American character who actually lives in Africa as an African chieftain, his heritage is African, and he has this sort of noble bearing and he's associated with a lion. A colleague of mine, Blair Davis, has written really well about the origins of Lion Man who had this one and only appearance. But after that, you know, the well uh was pretty dry until black panther and black panther is interesting because he's the first black superhero from a major publisher and he's not american um and you know, one can only make suppositions because, you know, people only talk about it after the fact and why they made this choice and how they did it. So you, you never are able to take that at quite face value. And to try to think about the implications of what it means that the first black superhero from a major publisher would be African rather than African-American. And there are a couple of ways to understand it. One of them is, you know, perhaps um, more cynical, which is, that in 1966, race uh, relations in the United States were becoming more fraught. The civil rights movement was becoming more ascendant, which pleased a lot of um, white people and didn't please a lot of white people. And so, you know, there's there's contention there. And so, putting your black superhero over in Africa meant that that character didn't have to contend and engage with American racial politics. In a way, it's a sort of deft sideswipe um of any political controversy on the less cynical side though what it did was it not only gave us an African hero, it gave us an African hero in a country that because of the fortuitous existence of vibranium um, was always wealthy, self-sufficient, had never been colonized, had never participated in the slave trade and the Middle Passage. And it provided an entirely alternative aspirational, history for the continent of africa for africans and therefore for you know the diasporic population of african americans um and so whatever the motivations for setting black panther in an african kingdom an african nation uh it really had um some really salutary aspects to it and it did allow this character to exist apart from and above um political definition
1: and as you pointed out uh, by being the even though he was the first it was still pretty obvious that n- neither publisher was going to continue it in any great detail i mean black panther uh came out in as you said six, 66 and it's not like Marvel then rushed to do a bunch more black superheroes. Um, DC really doesn't do a, a black superhero till Black lightning, and that's in 77. So um, there clearly is is still moving very slowly on these kind of things. And the one of the good things is these days you can now read so many of these older stories that first came out. I mean, both Marvel and DC have their, uh, online there are digital comics subscriptions which allow you to read some of the older things which is great because for anyone interested in history of these of these um characters and how they started the other thing i I wanted to mention because i'm sorry
0: can i just can i just get in i just want to say that there there was a sort of flurry of black superheroes between uh black panther and black lightning because marvel in pretty short order well first of all they brought Uh, Black Panther back, they made made him an Avenger. Usually he wasn't a major character. Usually he was sort of just one of the gang and on the comics covers he's often like really small like next to hawkeye really small in the background while thor and captain america and the hulk are like in the front or whatever but then you had um uh, dc coming up with a black green lantern in 1972 which is the same year that um um, marvel comes out with luke cage who is then known as a hero for hire who would hand out business cards he lived above a movie theater somewhere in harlem Uh, and then you know you get black like lightning in 78. So there was actually a flurry of activity. And, and it's obvious that there was a recognition that, you know, however they were gonna do it, and they were gonna try all kinds of ways, there was a need, far, there was a, a far more perceptible need to have superheroes of color uh, than there was, for example, to have superheroes that were women. Other than as, let's say, eye candy, or someone who is, you know, worried about whether Reed Richards was in too much danger or not, um, it's interesting that the that the appearance of black superheroes is almost immediately aligned with ideas of of black pride, of characters who would, you know. Um, Stand up for their race, stand up for their community, um, and that they, you know, Black Panther's Africanness aside, all these other heroes are African American, inner city, um, you know, characters. We took it
1: all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse.
0: Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become?
1: Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. And in fact, your preface this is where I was going to before we went and we talked about that part. The, probably one of the great stories that you included, or, or I don't know what you want to call a story or information, was in your preface where you talk about Green Lantern number seventy-six um, by Dennis O'Neill, who wrote some incredible work for DC, especially um, in which he portray. Uh, you know, he brings up a story where an African American crowd comes back at. Uh, um, green arrow with some information about uh, what arrow had just done and it's clear that the the oh, what racial lantern a- yeah, green yeah, lantern, what and, lantern had done and that great the racial aspect of what green lantern thought he was doing and it turns out maybe he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do and
0: should, so, should I spell that out a
1: little sure bit why don't you because i think out? it's a, it, i think it helps to pre- to make your point about how the publishers did finally begin to understand that they needed to broaden their horizons with their their books.
0: something needed to happen. Uh, Green Lantern was an intergalactic cop, essentially, and his book was on the verge of cancellation. He was not a popular hero. And the powers that be uh, let Denny O'Neill, who's a firebrand writer of superhero comics, team him up with Green Arrow, um, and he worked with artist Neil Adams, who r- just recently passed away, one of the truly great superhero comic artists and comic artists period of all time. Excuse me. And uh, he sort of revamped Green Arrow as a, into more of a uh, Robin Hood type character in in look and in and in ideology. And. So at the beginning of Green Lantern, Green Arrow 76, which Abraham Reisman calls the day comics got woke, um, and I think he's right, Green Lantern rescues this white man from an Unruly black crowd, until Green Arrow stops him and points out that this white man is, in fact, the fat cat slumlord who owns the building that these people that these black people live in, who have no hot water, whose building, whose apartments are not being painted or maintained or, you know, kept clean or anything like that. And so Green Lantern is like, a little, shook up by this, and and up shuffles. I have to find the. image here or the quote, just give me half a second. Um sorry, 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 sorry. I just want to find the actual uh Yeah
1: I've just had it in front of me. Sorry. Yeah it's on page eight or excuse me, page yeah, five of the preface. Page five, I got it. So i
0: I will I'll read it in my normal Scott Buchanan voice, but up shuffles an elderly black man who says to Green Lantern, I've been reading about you, how you work for the blue skins and how on a planet someplace you helped out the orange skins. And you are considerable for the purple skins. Only there's skins you never bothered with, the black skins. I wanna know, how come? Answer me that, Mr. Green Lantern. And a deeply chagrined Mr. Green Lantern says, "I, I can't. Um, he can't answer that and so you know this is 1969 and this acknowledgement that something 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 has to change and even though Marvel and DC were almost entirely like 99.9% populated by white creators they at least recognized that the times they were a change in and that comics had to change as well and Black Panther was I think the first or let's say the next major step a central Character, uh, a hero who was himself black, African, if not
1: African American. So, of course, Black Panther can, you know, goes through various iterations in the comics, which tends to happen with virtually every character. Um, appears different, right? People writing him, and now, of course, uh, you know, it, it 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 would continue even more after the film. So then, the next part of the book talks about. Uh, more the rest of the book pretty much is about the about the movie itself and aspects of the movie um, so for example uh, the first section has to do with how Black Panther looks uh, and, and his you use the word corporality in your introduction but uh, it's uh, that the title is black Panther's black body of the of the uh, ch- of the chapter so what were you trying to present as far as this was concerned, given the idea of a black superhero. This gets to the crux of
0: what my book is about, what I felt the central focus of the book had to be, and the way that the book changed in my writing it. So to preface the discussion of the Black Panther's Black Body chapter, um, you you mentioned the preface before that that I added to the book, and that preface is very much about how I, a white scholar, felt about writing about Black Panther because it wasn't just the pandemic that was going on while I was writing this book and that came about after I was given the task of writing this book. George Floyd and the absurgence of Black Lives Matter and all of the police violence and the systemic uh, racial inequalities in our healthcare system and in all of our other institutional systems, these became so evident and these became so central to, to discussion and all the media of the day that there was no way that my book could not um treat this stuff as central initially i thought black panther as a as a film for me to write about would be an opportunity for me to get over my distaste for the cinematic superhero I was finally going to theorize the cinematic superhero the body of the superhero on screen in a way that you know would carry my work uh, to a, a a different um take it in a somewhat different direction and take it to new depths depths in a good way here and uh, at least hopefully in a good way and then came all of the uh you know centrality of, discussions of race, which is something that I've never really dealt with very much in my work. It's been there here and there um, mm-hmm. sporadically in pieces that I've that I've written. And I needed to think about that. I needed to figure out whether I as a white scholar was in fact the appropriate person to deal with this and try to figure out ways to do it because my work has always centered on, Uh, My own bodily experience, Uh, you know, not that I write about myself uh, uh, solely or even primarily, but I use my own bodily experience as a starting point for thinking about bodies on screen or bodies on the page. Um, How do bodies operate in the world? You know, I'm, I'm a bit of a phenomenologist, so I'm concerned with the idea of experience more than meaning. I'm interested in the way things move and the way bodies exist. Exist within the world and experience the world the way we experience the world through our bodies and through our senses and I've always done that in a pretty generic way thinking about oh a, a, a body in flight what would that be like and how does that help us understand space differently how does that under help us understand our bodies differently well suddenly now I could no longer pretend that the black body of the Black Panther was just incidental to what the Black Panther was. And that my bodily experience and my my ability to function in the world as a white body was going to be very different. It was going to be very different from that of a Black person, a Black American, uh, a Black male American. And that, you know, this character, this Black superhero, was going to resonate differently for Black audiences, should resonate differently for Black audiences than it was going to for me. Um, and so I needed to find ways to think about and write about and learn about uh bodily experiences that were not my experiences that rather than um coming from a position of erasure and invisibility and suspicion and uh you know a kind of uh um sustained the sustained work that society does to render black male bodies powerless and vulnerable I needed to do a whole lot more work to try to understand the significance and the power of a Black body that would not be so easily erased um shackled or contained and that became very much the mission of my book and it involved me doing a lot of reading um, by african-american scholars and journalists um to, to who who themselves had thought about this and had written about it and had thought about it maybe in context far apart from um the world of superheroes, but many of whom were writing specifically about superheroes and about Black Panther. And I needed to try to synthesize all of this. And um, as you probably know, uh, one of the main writers on Black Panther over the past few years was Tana Hazy Coates, the um, essayist and sometime fiction writer. And now um, he's written a ton of comics. He's not writing comics right now. Uh, maybe, Yeah, I think he finally is not writing comics right now. But he did for now for quite a few years. and. The book that he is best known for is a book length essay called Between the World and Me, which is a letter to his son, or takes the form of a letter to his son, where he talks about the vulnerability of the black body and the ways in which it is mutilated and shackled and contained and all the things that I just said. And I thought, wow, here he is then turning around and writing the adventures of Black Panther, precisely a body that is resistant to all of the, uh, uh, ways that black bodies in American culture are denigrated and controlled. And I thought that was very profound. And I thought that that was really a key to understanding the importance of black Panther to black audiences, primarily, but also audiences that were just simply not white male audiences. And, um, and that Kugler's approach to Black Panther was very much of a piece with Coates's approach to the character in the comics. And to present this character incarnated by Chadwick Boseman, this deeply regal, deeply graceful, deeply powerful on-screen presence, such a astonishingly good actor um that i wanted that first that first chapter to be very much about what it is to have a black superhero on screen where audiences can identify uh with that and and i um i try to move beyond that cliche of a hero that looks like me or looks like them, however the appropriate phrasing of that would be. I try to move beyond that because I think that's all well and good, but it makes it sound a little bit more like an affirmative action program. Like, oh, we need heroes now that look like this community, heroes that look like people in this community. But what's amazing to me about Black Panther, and when I think about some of the later DC movies with uh, Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn, you know, in a similar position as far as, you know, powerful women's bodies on screen. I think to myself that the real issue isn't just that this hero looks like me, it's that this hero is allowed to function in the world in ways that I am not they are allowed to take control. They are allowed not just to fight like any superhero does, they're allowed to fight back. They're allowed to assert themselves. They're allowed to assert their, their their way of being. And I end up spending a long time in the book talking about the scene where T'Challa returns seemingly from the dead to confront Killmonger, just as the vibranium weapon-laden ships are leaving Wakanda to go help fight the global struggle for black liberation which is killmonger's avowed mission and he stands and he just says killmonger he says you know uh Nijdaka, i never yielded you know he 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 has never yielded from the fight that um um he lost to uh to to killmonger i never yielded and then he says and as you can see and he stretches his arms out i am not dead and I find the scene unbelievably moving. I can't talk about it without, without goosebumps because there I see not a superhero proclaiming the fight goes on to his supervillain nemesis, but I see a black man proclaiming his existence, proclaiming his right to be and his right to be seen um and uh in the book i say that and i mean this as i was writing about it i thought the important part of the sentence was i am not dead and as i wrote it i realized the important part was as you can see because it was all about visibility and all about being there in this multi-million dollar movie arms spread on the wide screen mask off just there that i found just uh, astonishingly powerful and that became the central image of that chapter on the black panther's black body
1: and of course as anybody who's seen the film and given it more than a one a brief thought can understand there is no obvious good guy bad guy in this film killmonger yes he does things that are bad, and he does a lot of things that could be called evil. But his reasoning is not; does not seem to come from evil. It comes from what he sees as the better thing to do, uh, as far as the rest of the world, the Africans and Af- African people, and African Americans, obviously, in the rest of the world. And how do you put the two together? And, of course, that's not that different from what went on in the 60s, where um, African-American civil rights people both had their ideas of how best to solve the civil rights issue, where Mm -hmm. the one side, like Martin Luther King, was for nonviolence, and then there were groups of people who were on the opposite side who felt, well, and the most obvious example was Malcolm X, where the two had, had the same belief of what needs to happen, but they didn't necessarily have the same reason for how you do it
0: right they differed in terms of their methods and some of that you know marvel had already played with the martin luther king malcolm x dichotomy and the uh, professor x magneto uh you know rivalry where uh, you know should we try to live with humans or we're better than humans we should we should take over and all of that sort of pseudo political thing um Killmonger divided audiences really significantly uh, as to what they made of this character. There were some people who felt that uh, that we were supposed to side with him. Uh, Slava Žižek sees him as the hero of the movie, and many another commentator has said that, you know, uh, he is a very sympathetic character. He's been wronged by Wakanda. His father was killed by King T'Chaka. He was abandoned to stay in America, presumably with his mother, whom we never see. And he is now on a mission of vengeance against Wakanda, which he frames in terms of a global political, you know, black political liberation, um, and sees the, the, you know, that Wakanda has a responsibility to the rest of the world, whereas you know, Panther and his and his Wakandan um, um, confreres feel that, you know, Wakanda has survived by existing apart, that its only responsibility is to itself. So there is a debate there as to what this very powerful nation's responsibility is to the billions of people in the world that, as Killmonger says, look like us.
1: And of course, the interest, and you're going to say it probably in a second, in the end, Black Panther or you know, tends to, you know, decides to change, partly because of some of the arguments that Kilmonger made, and at the end decides it's time for outreach.
0: That That's right. We get these outreach programs, which some commentators on the film felt was like too little too late. Oh, great, an outreach center. That'll fix uh, the problems of the world. Like, that's ridiculous. Whereas I think that an outreach center, the first of which is going to be in Oakland, which is where uh, Kilmonger's uh, father was killed, but also where the Black Panthers started their soup kitchen and you know feeding um, and education programs, you know, in in the, in the mid '60s. You know, the, the the first outreach program would be in Oakland is is from i read it as a first step but what was most interesting to me in looking at the different takes on whether or not killmonger was a villain and there were some people who thought some writers thought that the only character in the film who is espousing violent revolution is portrayed as a kind of sociopath um, and somebody who has to be defeated and destroyed And so by insinuation, they argue, the struggle for violent liberation is itself sort of damned by its association with Killmonger, that it is associated with his villainy. And therefore, the film is saying that, you know, these tools of liberation, this is not an appropriate way to go. I don't think the film actually weighs in on what the appropriate way is to change the world. But I I was struck by the contradictory readings by otherwise very sympathetic writers um, in how they interpreted the relationship of T'Challa, Killmonger, Wakanda and the rest of the world. And so what I did in my book was I turned to sort of very old fashioned uh, film studies techniques. And I decided, I didn't decide, I couldn't help it. Um, I looked at what was staring me in the face. And what was staring me in the face were the two performances of Chadwick Boseman, which we talked about a little bit already, but also of Michael B. Jordan. And again, as you brought up, Joel, the... um, the use of Michael B. Jordan in Black Panther is anything but incidental. It isn't just that that Kugler wanted to give his buddy a part in his movie. Kugler has used Jordan as a kind of alter ego in the three films that they've done together. So simply by casting Michael B. Jordan as Killmonger, you've already you know, you've already done something here. You've already taken a deeply sympathetic actor, one who really has won the hearts of audiences ever since he played Wallace in The Wire, one of the low level kids running, you know, the low level drug operations, the drug operations in the low rises in Baltimore in The Wire. And in Friday Night Lights and in Creed and in Work After Work, he's constantly playing a decent kid who can't get a break, who doesn't have strong people to help guide him, who's sort of flailing a bit. And here he is in Black Panther playing very much that same character. And I can't help but feel that when you look at the performance of Michael B. Jordan, the contradictions that people see in the movie about what is it espousing about black politics, I think through Michael B Jordan and Chadwick Bozeman, this thing this this starts to fall into place and become much more much more um, uh, readable, much more consistent. Um, and I think there's a way in which Hillmonger thinks his mission is global. Black liberation. He sees himself as a revolutionary. This is the role he has cast himself in when what he really is is somebody who has been deeply, deeply hurt, not by the world, but by Wakanda and by T'Challa's family. And his mission is not as political as he thinks it is. It is deeply, deeply, deeply personal. One of the great writers on uh, on the movie, Doreen Saint-Philippe, or Felix, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce her name in The New Yorker, a fantastic TV and media critic, um, said that, you know, calls Killmonger the fly in Wakanda's ointment. And, you know, and the existence of this utopia, this utopia untouched by pain, um, you know, has driven Killmonger completely mad and he has come back to kind of try to redress the balance. Um, To to summarize all that, what I'm saying is that while the politics of the script seem to go in all these different directions, and it's difficult to tell like, what is the film saying to us about these various issues? If you look at the movie as a movie and not as a script, and that means, you know, sort of taking account of the actors at its center and what they project, you get two actors who are performing struggle. They're trying to figure out their relationship to each other. By the end of the movie, Bozeman, this regal, cool, self possessed, self contained figure, has begun to realize that there is something wrong in the history that he has been taught. There is something wrong with the isolationism that he has been you know, um, um, taught to you know venerate. There is something wrong with uh, a nation that doesn't acknowledge its responsibility to the larger world and to the larger black world. And and Kilmonger, I think, has has, you know, uh, by the end, as he lies dying, has just sort of, I think, come to. He's come to allow himself to feel the hurt and the pain. uh uh, about this world from which he's been excluded from this world that he could never be a part of because of the hatred that he was holding and it's not like he learned his lesson if he could do it all over again he wouldn't hate no no the hate is fundamental to him but as he lies there watching the beautiful wakandan sunset you know there's a brief sense of what what an alternative life could have been had the world treated him differently it's really moving and it's moving in large part because of these two actors and what they do with their characters and what they do on screen in
1: relation to each other and of course the other thing he chooses is to give you know is to let it go because he he, they could have probably saved him based on what we knew about wakandan medicine but he chose, he says, no, that's, it, it, you know, it's best to just end it right here. And well, I he think says, it,
0: let, let, let me end it the way my, bury me at sea, throw me over the boat, the boat the way my ancestors jumped off the slave ships because they knew there was no future. They knew, you know, that, that bondage uh, was worth that. I'm sorry, let me back up. I should get, we should actually get the actual line, but that um that death was preferable to bondage, that death was preferable to bondage. So yeah, Wakandan medicine probably could have healed the hole in his side. And, uh, you know, he could have served some time in a Wakandan prison, but that was not the killmonger way. That was not a path open to this man. Um, because it would not heal the pain that he had. It would not solve any of the problems that he brought to the frontier of Wakanda to the borders of Wakanda.
1: Well, I know we've been mostly just hitting things on the surface a little bit, although we did get in-depth on some of it because there's just so much. We've actually been talking for an hour already. But I wanted to talk briefly at least, even though it really isn't part of what we don't know what the new film is going to be like. I mean, the the sequel or the second Black Panther movie is coming out in November. Um, So it will be interesting to see how they either build on themes already. Maybe we'll get more information about the outreach, what they've been or been not doing, and how are they going to continue the story of the Black Panther um, with the next film with Chadwick Boseman's death. And I <laughs> I still remember it was a Friday night, I think, where I saw a brief thing on Twitter that he had passed away. And, I mean, it was just one of those things where people were... People didn't even know he was, he was ill. And... Um, it was just unbelievable to read what people thought of him and, and the pe- person he was. And it's going to be interesting to see how they do going forward. Can I say something about that? Um,
0: you know, when I talked about earlier, when I talked about the things that, that made me wonder whether I was the right person to write this book or not, uh, I too remember where I was when uh, my little phone buzzed and told me that, that Bozeman had died. And, um, you know, and I, I have to admit that until that moment, not that moment, but until the outpouring of grief around Bozeman, following his death, before that point, I was such a Ryan Coogler, Michael B. Jordan fan that I really thought that, Black Panther was a Michael B. Jordan movie in disguise and that Bozeman was a colder character, a less engaging, um, on-screen figure. And, you know, Coogler, ha- he, you know, he had to be Black Panther because he was cast as Black Panther before Kugler came along. All of this is supposition on my part and I've never, it, it's wrong. I mean, it, this is just stuff that went on in my head when I half thought about it, not anything that was true in the least. But it wasn't until I realized how deeply the Black community was affected by the death of Chadwick Bozeman. it wasn't until then that I realized just how urgent, how central Bozeman was to that movie, to its success, and to what it meant for Black audiences. I had underrated the power of Bozeman's presence and performance. Uh, in part because I'd never seen his other movies. He made mostly biopics, which isn't like a genre that I generally go to. Uh, He played Thurgood Marshall. He played James Brown. He played, you know, Jackie Robinson. I wasn't aware of him in the same way, but, you know, it was quite obvious after his death that, my God, Bozeman was integral. And so, yeah, the question of what was going to happen with Black Panther 2 You know, was was important to many people. Um, And I, with many, many, many others, felt very relieved when Marvel made the decision to not recast T'Challa with another actor and that they would go a different direction. There would be another Black Panther, but it would be a different person in in that garb. But very recently, Roxanne Gay had a piece in the New York Times. Uh, and Roxanne Gay is a, uh, a Black fiction writer and essayist who's also, along with Ta Nehisi Coates, done some writing for a World of Wakanda comic uh, for Marvel. And she talked about the fact that, you know, now that some water has gone under the bridge, now that some time has passed, it may be that Black Panther, T'Challa, Is that 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 incarnation of Black Panther, T'Challa, the King of Wakanda, that this character is so important to a Black popular imagination that at some point, perhaps recasting that role would not be a disservice. To Chadwick Boseman or to that character and I think she has a, she makes a very good point and so I think in this movie you know it's it's a near sequel we'll see how it goes but um it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world and I don't mean because of some stupid multiverse where he's still alive or some such thing it's just it might just be okay in the world to have a T'Challa who is Black Panther in our world again
1: well we'll we'll see in a few months uh, but mm-hmm. i know like i said before we've touched the surface and there's so much information in there in the book we completely didn't even talk about the one chapter dealing with wakanda itself although oh, yeah. i have to say my probably one of the most lighthearted scenes in the film is the infamous q scene where uh where t'challa's sister um, demonstrates all the Hard, all the hardware before he goes out on a mission which i thought was was inspired as a as a scene in the middle just early on to to try to to uh just sort of maybe pick a little finger you know point a little finger or maybe just sort of you know do a little bit of haha we've we've got a james bond we've got right. our cue and it's, such
0: it's um you know I, I i'll just briefly summarize that chapter because i look at wakanda four ways because i think Black Panther is not Black Panther without Wakanda. There are other black superheroes. None of them has a nation. None of them has a nation backing them up. And so I look at Wakanda, first of all, as an Afrofuturist fantasy, which is evident and obvious, but you know, you need to go there. I also write about it as a pan-Africanist utopia and part of a long history of pan-Africanist utopias. I write about it as a feminist stronghold, because unlike most other superhero movies and especially Marvel superhero movies, the women in the film are not just there to, you know, be the, uh, Gal Friday for the superhero. They have lives of their own. They have political will of their own. They have interactions of their own. And then um, I also write about it as an as presenting an alternative history for Africa, which is kind of part of the Afrofuturist thing. But there are like four different ways that I try to understand Wakanda because it is as essential to the movie Black Panther as is Black Panther.
1: As I say, I we've been. Talking about your book *Black Panther* from University of Texas Press, it's unusual. You've got a book that doesn't have a subtitle. It's just *Black Panther*, although it is part of the series that you mentioned. So that's that's great too. Um, I hope, uh, uh, as I say, this was this was a great discussion. I know we could only talk about it in section, you know, in a reasonably short period of time. Uh, I appreciate that University of Texas Press reached out to me with the uh, with a suggestion to interview you, and I really did enjoy our talk. It's unbelievable how well you communicate your information, and I suspect if I were a student, I would probably be very happy to be in a class taught by you. Well, thank you very much,
0: Joel, and I appreciate you reaching out to me. Um, you know, to to do this, I enjoyed it a lot, and I, I, I'm very appreciative of the time you took to read this thing and talk to me about it well
1: this is a good time for others to read it too because black panther is definitely going to be part of the conversation over the next few months as we as and, and, and it, it makes a great gift <laughs> there you go my great thanks to scott for his time with the long-awaited black panther sequel set for release his book is a timely review of the character this is joel Cherney, and i will be back soon with more new books and film a podcast series on the New Books Network.